Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a bi-weekly podcast delivering a legit, seriously researched, hard-hitting survey of American history through entertaining stories. If you'd like to support HTDS or enjoy bonus content, please consider giving at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. It's sometime between 4.30 and 5 a.m., April 19th, 1775. Seventy or so colonial militiamen are standing on the common, or green, as these open, grassy communal fields are often called, in the small New England town of Lexington, Massachusetts. The sun is barely rising, but they can make out the silhouette of an approaching Redcoat army. Stoically, militia captain John Parker calls out to his men, Stand your ground. Don't fire unless fired upon. But if they want a war, let it begin here. A sword-wielding British officer rides forward, likely Major John Pickern. He yells out a warning at the musket-bearing colonials. Ye villains! Ye rebels! Disperse! Damn you, disperse! Lay down your arms, you damned rebels, or you are all dead men! As the likely Major threatens, his six companies of light infantry arrive at the other side of the green. They hurry to take battle formation. Two sections or lines, each three ranks deep. Good God. The militiamen grasp how dire their situation is. Major Pickern sees how bad this is. Neither the Redcoats nor Colonials want this to go sideways. John Parker tells his men to disperse, and they're starting to. But somewhere, between these hundreds of sleep-deprived, frustrated, adrenaline-charged and armed men, it happens. A single shot, reportedly a pistol from the sound of it, cuts through the early morning air. Who fired it? Was it a colonial? A redcoat? Was it even one of the soldiers on Lexington's green? Was it intentional? Or just the unfortunate misfire of an unreliable 18th century gun? We'll never know for sure. But regardless of fault, both sides now think the other has fired. A few isolated shots follow. A British officer calls out, Fire! By God, fire! At least, that's how Reverend Jonas Clark will remember it. But Lieutenant John Barker of the King's Own hears no such order. He and his fellow Redcoats are convinced the Patriots have fired, and that's why, as he tells us, our men, without any orders, rushed in upon them, fired, and put them to flight. Ordered, not ordered, no one will ever know. Everything is happening so fast right now. The British troops unleash a volley of musketry on the militia. As smoke billows from the Redcoats' freshly discharged muskets, Patriot militiaman Sylvanius Wood of Woburn doesn't see anyone falling dead or wounded. Was that first volley just a warning? He believes so. Says Sylvanius, Some guns were fired by the British at us from the first platoon, but no person was killed or hurt being probably charged only with powder. Ah, so they fired blanks, as you and I would put it. Warning shots. But this is a real battle now, so there are no warning shots in the second British volley. It's time for live powder and ball. Some Patriot militiamen choose to stand their ground and are hit. This includes Captain John Parker's older cousin, Jonas Parker. Lying wounded in the Lexington Green's thick grass, he stubbornly tries to load his musket. But as he pushes through the likely lightheadedness and nausea brought on by quick and excessive blood loss, trying to ram powder and ball down his musket's barrel, the British advance, bayonets fixed. Before Jonas can finish loading, a redcoat skewers the elderly patriot. Jonas Parker lies dead, near if not exactly where he first lined up with his fellow patriots. The same goes for Isaac Muzzy and Robert Monroe. Injured, Jonathan Harrington tries to retreat to his house near the Lexington Green, but to no avail. He literally dies just shy of the door to his own home. 
Both Samuel Hadley and John Brown also attempt to flee in an injured state. They make it off the green, then drop lifeless. As for Caleb Harrington, he shot near Lexington's meeting house, where he was guarding a supply of black powder. The final death is Azel Porter, from the neighboring town of Woburn. Though taken prisoner, Azel tries to flee. The Redcoats shoot him dead. More Colonials are injured. They include another Monroe and another Brown. Yes, lots of repeating last names, because Lexington's a small place and a lot of these people are related. Not to take away from what military experience some of these men have, like Captain John Parker, who's a veteran of the French and Indian or Seven Years' War, but this sad excuse for a militia might be better described as a gathering of extended family. With one likely exception, that is. Prince Estabrook. Young and enslaved, Prince mustered this morning too, and the Essex Gazette will list Prince among the wounded in its April 25, 1775 edition, describing him as, quote, a Negro man of Lexington, close quote. In total, eight New Englanders are dead, 10 are injured. In return, the Patriots managed to inflict exactly one casualty on the British, a grazing wound on one Redcoat's leg. But as the smoke from discharged muskets billows over the Lexington Green, the morning's chaos and confusion is hardly over. Though unwanted or intended, this short, almost spontaneous scuffle will have far-reaching consequences. A pistol, a musket, whatever that first firearm was this morning, its discharge triggered more than powder and ball, or even a deadly scuffle. It triggered a war. Welcome to History That Doesn't Suck. I'm your professor, Greg Jackson, and I'd like to tell you a story. In the last episode, we left off with the first shot of the revolution, and today, we've picked up right where we left off. At that same moment in which all the tension building between the crown and the colonies since the French and Indian or Seven Years' War unleashed that first shot of the revolution's first battle, the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Having witnessed this first skirmish and casualties, we'll now follow the British army as it marches out to Concord to complete its mission, destroying a cache of munitions. But as we and they will soon see, there's more fighting to be done in that small New England town with the deadliest yet to come as the British army returns to Boston. The Patriots are going to pick them off as they march, kind of like that opening scene in the movie The Patriot, except with less accurate muskets and no Mel Gibson. But once this deadly day is done, as both sides start to process what just happened, we'll have one last task ahead of us, a visit to the newly convening Second Continental Congress. It's time to organize a Continental Army, and one delegate from Massachusetts, Mr. John Adams, knows exactly whom to nominate. But I'll leave it there for now. No need to give too many spoilers. It's a heavy, momentous episode, so let's get to it. We now continue with the first day of the Revolutionary War, the April 19, 1775 Battle of Lexington and Concord. As the smoke from freshly discharged British muskets dissipates and the smell of black powder wafts across the dead-strewn Lexington Green, a heavy-set 50-something in an impeccable red coat rides onto the scene. This is the commander of His Majesty's 10th Regiment of Foot, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith. He's the one leading this 700-strong force heading to Concord, but was farther back when the fighting broke out. Now catching up to the advanced guard, he rides up to and begins speaking with Major Pickern. We have no record of what is said during this conversation, but these commanders must be discussing what a disaster they have on their hands. Their orders are to seize the store of arms at Concord. That's it. And so far, more New Englanders have died than did at the Boston Massacre five years back. Now, seizing these arms is a hard task. We witnessed Colonel Alexander Leslie nearly get into a skirmish himself two months ago, trying and failing to disarm Salem, Massachusetts in the last episode. But still, At least he avoided shedding blood. I have to imagine these commanders debating, or at least wondering, if they just inadvertently started a civil war between Britain and, 
Massachusetts Bay, all of New England, all the American colonies? I'm sure the Colonel is already thinking to himself, how on earth am I going to explain this to General Thomas Gage? With some difficulty, the British soldiers reform ranks. The difficulty isn't due to a lack of training or discipline, but between their sleepless night, long march from Boston, and this unexpected skirmish, there's still plenty of confusion. Frankly, these troops don't even know why they're marching. That's how closely guarded these orders are, or were. Realizing the whole countryside knows they're out here, the commanders tell the soldiers what the mission is, that they're heading to Concord to seize and destroy munitions stored by the militia and expected to be used in a revolt against the king. This seems crazy to the men. They've lost any element of surprise, but the colonel won't back down. They have orders and they will see those orders through. Redcoats fire off a volley in a victory salute and give a cheer of huzzas. Still watching, local Lexington residents don't realize that this victory salute is likely more about discharging any loaded guns, thus avoiding another possible random, ill-timed and troublemaking shot than rejoicing. But that's exactly how the Reverend Jonas Clark interprets it. He'll later recount their huzzas, quote, as expressive of the joy of victory and glory of conquest. Of this transaction, I was a witness. Close quote. Man, more misunderstanding between the colonials and British forces. But at least order has been restored. No longer worried about moving in secret, fife and drum keep time as the British army begins the six or so mile march from Lexington to Concord. But as they march, let's get caught up on what's already going on in Concord. First, the whole town knows the Redcoats are coming. According to Reverend William Emerson, they've known since 1 or 2 a.m. when, quote, this intelligence was brought us at first by Dr. Samuel Prescott, close quote. Ah, yes, I trust you recall from the last episode that although Paul Revere was arrested and William Dawes got lost, our friend Dr. Samuel Prescott, who joined these two Bostonian riders at Lexington, evaded arrest, and as a local who knows the terrain, made it to Concord. Patriots then rang the town's bell, sending a warning out in the still dark morning at 3 a.m. The subset of militia designated to respond immediately, the Minutemen, began to gather at Wright's Tavern. Further intel came a few hours later from Reuben Brown. Town leaders sent this saddlemaker to Lexington to gather information, and he was at the edge of Lexington's green when the first shots went off early this morning. He didn't stick around to see the end, though. No time for such a luxury in the 18th century. Reuben doesn't have a quick 15-minute drive down Route 2A back to Concord. He's on horseback, so time is of the essence. The moment shots were fired, Reuben started back. Thus it is that, as the British march toward Concord shortly after sunrise, the returned saddle-making spy is telling Major John Buttrick of the Concord Militia Company about the start of the skirmish at Lexington. Useful information, to be sure, but the militia major presses. Did the Redcoats fire just powder? Again, think blanks. Or were they firing ball? Ah, if only Reuben knew. He guesses yes, but can't say for sure. Now, a quick timeout. I've called ammo ball a few times, and we will definitely talk more about firearms in future episodes as we start this war. So let's make sure you're up on your 18th century gun lingo. First, most of the arms we will be dealing with are muskets. If that word is unfamiliar to you, think of a long-barreled gun, like what we often call a rifle. But there's a crucial difference. Musket barrels are smooth bore. See, a rifle has spiral grooves inside the barrel, called rifling, that put a spin on the projectile to make it fly straighter, just like a spiral on a football. Lacking those grooves, musket fire also lacks that controlling spin. This makes it more erratic in flight, much like baseball's intentionally non-spinning and hard-to-hit knuckleball. That's why these muskets aren't the most accurate. As for the ammo, the ball I keep talking about is just what it sounds like. Sphere-shaped balls, generally made of lead. They are loaded down the front, or muzzle as it's called, of the musket's barrel. Got it? Awesome. Back to the story. Equipped with Reuben's incomplete but still vital report, Major John Buttrick and the other militiamen are unsure of what to do. I mean, the shots at Lexington have changed the game. 
In that moment, today's conflict crossed a line other recent run-ins, like the one in Salem, hadn't. This isn't political theater or a game. The men in Concord must assume these British troops are willing to do battle. The debate over the best course of action quickly turns generational. The older crowd wants to wait. Give the militiamen from neighboring towns, like Lincoln and Acton, who are already trickling in, more time to bolster their numbers. But the young men in the militia want to march out and meet the Redcoats. Ah, the naivete of youth. Such confidence and feeling immortal. They get their way. The militia will march out and meet the approaching British army. It's about 7 a.m., perhaps earlier, April 19, 1775. With drums and fifes sounding, roughly 150 militiamen march out of Concord toward Lexington. They make it about one mile down the dirt road, perhaps just a touch farther, when they see their foe. Dressed in smart red uniforms, their bayonets reflecting the early morning sun, the British army appears endless as it marches right at them. Okay then, only one thing to do, as the 23-year-old Concord militiaman, Amos Barrett, tells us. We halted and stayed till they got within about 100 rods. Then we were ordered to the about face and marched before them with our drums and fifes going, and also the British drums and fifes. We had grand music. But grand as the music may be, the militia returns to Concord with precious little time before the closely trailing redcoats arrive as well. So now what? Well, the youth got their way with the march out to meet the redcoats. Now the older men get theirs. These elderly patriots, some of whom served in the Seven Years' War, know the value of putting the train to use. Under the leadership of 64-year-old militia colonel James Barrett, the Patriot force heads north of this little town, across the North Bridge, which spans the Concord River, and up the 200-foot-tall Punkatasset Hill. From here, they'll avoid the chance of an unintentional battle, continue to grow their numbers as men from neighboring towns continue to arrive, and watch the Redcoats' movements below. It's now about 8 a.m. The Redcoats encounter no opposition as they enter Concord. Perhaps a bit surprising after that odd march behind the colonial militia on the road, but no matter. Colonel Smith is ready to attend to his duty, to seek out the munitions hidden among this town's meeting hall, few taverns, and 20 to 30 houses, then destroy them before they can be used in an act of rebellion. To this end, the Colonel divides his force of 703 ways. Captain Lawrence Parsons will take more than 200 soldiers up to the North Bridge. Some will hold the crossing, while the rest turn west and continue two miles or so toward Militia Colonel James Barrett's farm. Word has it most of the munitions are stored there. At the same time, Captain Mundy Pohl will take another 100 men to the town's south side, to the Sudbury River spanning South Bridge. Holding this bridge, they'll keep any still-arriving militias from crossing this northeast-flowing tributary of the Concord River. As for the remaining several hundred soldiers, they begin searching the town for munitions. Got a solid mental image of this river-divided town with two very sensibly named bridges? Good. Then let's see how Colonel Smith's thrice-divided troops fare in Concord. Just stick with me as we jump locations to capture their overlapping stories. It's about 9 a.m. Captain Pohl of the Grenadier's 10th Regiment and his hundred or so men are by the South Bridge. They search homes for arms and get some breakfast, for which they pay quite well, at a guinea apiece. On the west side of the bridge is Patriot Captain John Nixon with the West Sudbury Militia. Some of his men are eager to fight, and this includes one so old, he's excused from duty and technically not a part of their forces. A 79-year-old deacon, Mr. Josiah Haynes. He eggs on the much younger captain, if you don't go and drive them British from that bridge, I shall call you a coward. Others nod or voice their agreement. Remembering his orders not to start a fight, the much younger captain answers, I should rather be called a coward by you than called to account by my superior officer for disobedience of orders. Thanks to John's cool head, the first shot at Concord won't be fired here. But I'll go ahead and add that the old firebrand of a deacon won't live to see the end of the day he'll die later in battle. As maturity prevails to the south, Captain Parsons takes his 200-plus force the one mile up from Concord proper to the North Bridge. 
He leaves one company under the command of Captain Walter S. Lawry to hold this crossing, then another company each atop two knolls another couple hundred yards past it. Captain Parsons then leads the remaining three companies, or about 120 men, another two miles west to Militia Colonel James Barrett's farm. Once again, Intel says that James, who's with the militia up on Punkatasset Hill, has all sorts of military goods stashed at his place. The captain marches with high expectations. But let's keep our focus on Walter Lawry at the North Bridge for a second. He's nervous. That rebel militia above him on the hill is continuing to swell. There are hundreds of them, while he only has about 40 men at the bridge. The British companies on the two knolls are becoming nervous as well. They fall back to the bridge with Captain Lawry, bringing his forces up to a hundred or so. But that's still far smaller in number than the Colonials. The anxious captain sends Lieutenant Alexander Robertson back to town to ask Colonel Smith for reinforcements. But it might be too late as something goes terribly wrong in Concord. Back in the heart of town, the majority of Colonel Smith's troops are searching for munitions. They're being perfect gentlemen about it. Concord resident Timothy Wheeler will later recall stopping the Redcoats from destroying stores of flour, rye, and wheat in his barn by asserting ownership over all of it. I am a miller, sir. Yonder stands my mill. I get my living by it. Though disappointed, the officer answers, Well, we do not injure private property. They then withdrew. Likewise, when soldiers search Dorothy Wood's house and she tells them not to go in a room because ladies are inside, the soldiers respect her wishes. In reality, the only lady that might have been in there was Brown Bess, which is the name of one of the most popular muskets in the 18th century British Empire. Why are the Redcoats so thoughtful? Let's remember that no one realizes the Revolutionary War started this morning. Not even the soldiers who participated in the fighting at Lexington. Indeed, trying to set things right after this morning's disaster might be driving some of their civility, even if that makes their search less effective. But the truth is, the Redcoats wouldn't find much even if they were aggressive. Remember those Patriot spies we met in the last episode? Yeah, they were on it. Paul Revere may have gotten arrested on his way here last night, or this morning rather, but he had a much more successful ride out to Concord just days ago and brought warning that something was likely going to happen soon. That's why most munitions have already been moved, or, as we'll yet see, cleverly hidden. And so, for all the trouble of this 16-mile march from Boston to Concord, the Redcoats find very little. 500 pounds of musket balls, some flour. Lieutenant Barker of the King's Own adds that they destroy three pieces of cannon. I think the cannons are worth highlighting. We need to remember the Redcoats aren't just seizing mere pistols and muskets. These Patriot militias have some serious artillery. Yet, much of what the British soldiers find isn't destroyed anyhow. They toss much of this into the town's pond, which the Patriots will mostly rescue from the water the following day. But the Redcoats do destroy some of their findings with fire. And this is where things go wrong. The flames spread. They start to lick at the courthouse. With great persistence and a claim that the building's second floor is filled with black powder, 71-year-old widow Martha Moulton gets hungry redcoats to put down breakfast and form a bucket brigade to put it out. Well done, Martha. But this fire has already done more damage than the redcoats could know. Up on Punkatasset Hill, the now 400-plus militiamen and their officers are discussing what to do. And that's when they see it. A column of black smoke billowing in the sky right over Concord. They don't know the fire is an accident and that the redcoats are trying to put it out. All they see are flames in the midst of their homes, their businesses, among their friends, wives, and children. Have the British just put all that they love and hold dear to the torch? Militia Lieutenant Joseph Hosmer turns to the other officers and blurts out, Will you stand here and let them burn the town down? Colonel James Barrett gives the order. The indignant militiamen descend the hill toward the North Bridge, still very much held by British forces under the command of Captain Walter Lawry. And if crossing that bridge means battle, so be it. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's 
all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, oh, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's about 9.30 a.m., April 19th, 1775. Captain Walter Lawry and his hundred or so troops look on in shock and horror as over 400 colonial men, marching with incredible and unlikely discipline for a militia, come straight toward them. And still, no reinforcements from Colonel Smith. Where are they? Lieutenant Barker of the King's Own will later claim to know the answer. Quote, The colonel ordered two or three companies, but put himself at their head, by which means stopped them from being time enough. For being a very fat, heavy man, he would not have reached the bridge in half an hour. Close quote. Oof, harsh, Lieutenant. But right now, as this army of colonials closes in, all Captain Lawry and his fellow officers know is that they need more support. Actually, they're realizing they have another problem as well. They're on the wrong side of the bridge. Recognizing the tactical error of not putting the Concord River and this thin bottleneck of a crossing between themselves and the four times larger colonial force, the captain orders his men back across to the east side of the North Bridge. But as they dash over the long, narrow wooden bridge, one officer has an idea. They should damage the crossing so the rebels can't follow. Lieutenant William Sutherland will later claim that, as the last cross, he raised the first plank. But seeing the Redcoats ripping up the bridge's planks, the approaching Patriot militia is only further convinced that these fire-setting soldiers of the King are here to do harm. The emboldened militia begins loading their muskets. They still know not to fire unless fired upon, but all the same, they're ready. Imagine being Captain Lawry or one of his men right now. The terror that must seize you as you look the hundred or so feet across the river to the west side of the thin north bridge to see a militia at least four times the size of your force fixing their collective eyes on you while loading their muskets. You're not aware they have orders not to fire unless fired upon. And still, no reinforcements from the colonel. How on earth can this de-escalate? Captain Lawry's three companies rush into formation. A less effective one, Lieutenant Barker tells us, with, quote, one behind the other, so that only the front one could fire. Close quote. And then, it happens. As at Lexington, we don't know who fired first. Too many people, too many loaded guns in confusion, though we can say with confidence that, this time, it was likely a British gun. Even some British sources agree with this, including Captain Lawry, and Patriot militiamen will later recall seeing a shot hit the water. But regardless of who fired the first shot here, the result is the same as the first fired at Lexington earlier this very morning. It triggers a skirmish. But this time, the fight won't go the Redcoats' way. A Patriot officer yells out, God damn it! They're firing ball! One or two militiamen are then hit. And so, another colonial commander yells out, Fire! For God's sake, fire! That's right. 
No dispersing as at Lexington. This time, the militia leaders order their men to open fire on His Majesty's troops. And fire they do. If you visit Concord, Massachusetts today, you'll find the original Old North Bridge is long since gone. But a replica spans the river in the same spot. You'll also see an obelisk. If you're not familiar with that term, it's a tall shaft often used to memorialize things or people, like the famous Washington Memorial that honors George Washington at the National Mall in Washington, D.C. This one in Concord stands 25 feet tall and occupies the same spot of earth Captain Laurie and his men did on the bridge's east side. The obelisk was built about six decades after the battle, in 1836, and dedicated the following year amid Fourth of July celebrations. Reverend William Emerson, whose record of this battle is one of my sources, didn't live to see the day, but his grandson wrote a poem for the occasion. That grandson is one of America's most celebrated writers, Ralph Waldo Emerson. It goes like this. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. The foe long since in silence slept, alike the conqueror silent sleeps. In time, the ruined bridge has swept down the dark stream which seaward creeps. On this green bank, by this soft stream, we set today a votive stone, that memory may their deed redeem, when, like our sires, our sons are gone. Spirit that made those heroes dare to die and leave their children free, bid time and nature gently spare the shaft we raise to them and thee. The poem's called The Conquered Hymn, and many have debated just which shot Ralph is referring to when he says these farmers fired the shot heard round the world. Personally, I think Ralph is referring to the first shots fired by Americans under the order to fire. Americans have tarred and feathered, burnt the private property of royal officials, thrown oyster shells and ice chunks at soldiers. Some even returned fire at Lexington this morning. But never before this moment had American officers directly ordered Americans to fire their muskets at the King's soldiers. This bold, rebellious step is uncontestable treason. There's no going back. By the time the fighting is done at the North Bridge, the Redcoats have injured one and killed two. The dead patriots were men from Acton, 21-year-old Abner Hosmer and 30-year-old Captain Isaac Davis. Isaac was a young husband and father. Before he left home that morning, he looked as though he was going to say something significant to his wife. He paused, though, and instead just managed to blurt out, Take good care of the children. If only he'd known he would never see her again. I'm sure he would have spoken his mind. But now, his wife is a widow with four children, one of whom is only 15 months old. Yet, as British Lieutenant Barker tells us, the Patriots did worse to the Redcoats. Quote, Four officers of eight who were at the bridge were wounded. Three men killed, one sergeant and several men wounded. Close quote. The total is nine wounded and three dead, one of whom succumbs later after a terrified young colonial sinks a hatchet in his head. The story will later be exaggerated among redcoats to include defacing and scalping, thus giving rise to fears of American brutality. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Right now, the defeated Captain Laurie and his men are retreating back to Concord as the colonial militia takes hold of the North Bridge. But noticing the smoke over their town has disappeared, the militiamen stay put, simply unsure what to do. Of course, their staying at the bridge also means one group of redcoats is now cut off from the main army those with Captain Parsons. Up at the Barrett farm, Captain Parsons has been in a war of words with militia Colonel James Barrett's wife, Rebecca, and the captain seems to be losing. First, he and his officers had breakfast at the farm. They then tried to pay her, but the New England woman refused their money, instead making a witty scriptural reference to Proverbs and Romans, answering, we are commanded to feed our enemies. The soldiers then searched her home. Ugh, nothing. Where are the cannons and other munitions Intel told them were here? The captain then decided to arrest her young adult son, Stephen, to send him to England for trial as a traitor. 
Rebecca wasn't having it, though. She informed the captain that Stephen would not be arrested in lieu of his militia-leading father. Captain Parsons backed down. But how frustrating for him. At this point, they found little more than gun carriages. And it was just as they were about to set these on fire that the captain heard the roar of musketry coming from the two miles distant North Bridge. Ah, yes. That catches us up with our timeline. And as those shots ring out around 10 a.m., well, forget the cartridges. Immediately, the Redcoats move out. Marching away from the farmhouse, Captain Parsons and his men have no idea they failed to find the musket balls and flints in the attic. More famously, they have no idea that the fields around them, apparently plowed and freshly planted as one might expect in April, likely contain not seeds but muskets. Yes, tipped off that the British army might come, tradition holds that the Barrett boys brilliantly hid, or planted rather, all sorts of munitions in their fields. If true, these redcoats are now walking away from the farm, completely unaware that what they're looking for is almost literally under their feet. Approaching the North Bridge, Captain Parsons and his men must be in shock. There stands a massive colonial militia, a Patriot army. Good God. What can he do? To get back to Concord, they have to cross the North Bridge. The captain has his men continue on. Incredibly, this force of New Englanders lets them. Ever mindful of the missing planks, the soldiers step carefully, cross the North Bridge, and head to Concord. Why didn't either side shoot? Why didn't the Patriots take them captive? It's confusion. Shock. No one is quite in war mode. Not yet. But as more militiamen gather, as Concord learns the details and death toll of Lexington, and Lexington learns that British troops skirmished with militiamen for a second time today, this time at Concord's North Bridge, an image is coming together among the people of central Massachusetts, not of gentle soldiers politely searching for munitions, but of murderous redcoats. And as that image cements in the next hour or so, these militias will be done with that don't fire unless fired upon approach. From their perspective, the Redcoats want war, so they'll give it to them. It's now a little after 12 noon. Between the skirmish at the North Bridge and being spread across the Barrett Farm, two bridges, and the town itself, it took about two hours for Colonel Smith's troops to reunite and organize. But now, the army is back on the road, just outside Concord. All are dispirited. No drums, no fifes. Just the thudding of boots and clopping of hooves as 700 already exhausted men finish the first mile of 16 on a march back to Boston. But as they cross a bridge over a small brook, about where the Bedford Road, the Lexington Road, and the Miriam House form what's known as Miriam's Corner, for the third time today, it happens. While the origin of the first shot at Lexington is entirely disputed, and the first at Concord is generally attributed to a regular firearm, this one is thought to be colonial. But again, we just don't know. All we know for sure is that, as in the last two instances today, a single shot heralds battle. Using tactics learned and honed in the Americas, particularly during the French and Indian Seven Years' War, fresh militiamen from Reading now engage Colonel Smith's troops. Lieutenant Barker again describes the scene. Before we had gone half a mile, we were fired on from all sides, but mostly from the rear, where people had hid themselves in houses till we had passed and then fired. The country was an amazing, strong one, full of hills, woods, stone walls, etc., which the rebels did not fail to take advantage of, for they were all lined with people who kept an incessant fire upon us, as we did too upon them, but not with the same advantage, for they were so concealed, there was hardly any seeing them. In this way we marched between nine and ten miles, their numbers increasing from all parts, while ours was reduced by deaths, wounds, and fatigue and we were totally surrounded with such an incessant fire as it's impossible to conceive. Indeed, even as more Massachusetts militias arrive, swelling this colonial army's numbers into the thousands, the mile-long, two-man-across British column has no choice but to continue this death trap of a march. And when the British reach the forested boundary between Lincoln and Lexington, the same militia they decimated this morning is ready for a rematch. 
Firing from behind a boulder-strewn ridge, Captain John Parker and his men gladly avenged their fallen friends and family. This sight will come to be known as Parker's Revenge. The British Army's outlook is grim. Officers keep their men in ranks by threatening to kill them if they try to run. But arriving in Lexington around 2.30, Colonel Smith's troops are overcome with joy as they see Lord Hugh Percy's long-expected reinforcements. The roughly 1,000-strong 1st Brigade and its two six-pounder field guns. This levels the playing field. No one doubts that this is a battle now, though, and those same Redcoats who kindly paid for breakfast and spared private property in Concord have switched to total war. They burn houses. They loot. The house-to-house combat among the sparse homes of Monotomy, or Arlington, as the town will later be known, is especially brutal, racking up the casualties on both sides as every colonial man found, armed or not, is killed. But with Percy's aid, Colonel Smith's troops make it to Charlestown around 7 or 8 p.m. They are then ferried across the Charles River, back to Boston. After being on the move for about 21 hours straight and initially not even knowing why, I have to wonder what's going through the minds of Colonel Smith's troops as their heads hit their pillows that night. Or what's going through the minds of the militiamen of Massachusetts, for that matter. I mean, 49 Americans are dead, as are 73 Redcoats. Wounded and missing drive up the casualty count to 95 and 273, respectively. What just happened? A few days later, John Adams rides from his home in Braintree up to Cambridge. He speaks with militia leaders. No, generals of the New England Army, to use his words, then continues to Lexington. This famously honest lawyer, who defended the Redcoats involved in the Boston Massacre, yet is an ardent patriot and congressional delegate, is struck by everything he takes in. As his letter to William Barrell shows, he shudders, reflecting on how, quote, the fight was between those whose parents, but a few generations ago, were brothers, close quote. But John also knows, as he'll later write in his diary, the Battle of Lexington on the 19th of April changed the instruments of warfare from the pen to the sword. There's no knowing where the calamities to come will end, but surely this battle started a war and Massachusetts Bay will need her sister colonies. That's the realization John takes with him as he departs for the soon-to-start Second Continental Congress. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I trust you recall last year's First Continental Congress from the last episode. I won't rehash that 1774 gathering, but will remind you that, among its actions, this collective body representing the separate colonies rejected most of Parliament's authority and listed several grievances in its Declaration and Resolves and enacted economic sanctions through its Continental Association. The delegates also decided, before going their separate ways in October 1774, that they would only hold a second Congress if things really went poorly. In that event, they would meet in about half a year, starting on May 10th, 1775. Well, between King George III and Parliament each separately describing New England as being in a state of rebellion that winter, then the botched attempt to seize munitions at Salem last February, I guess you could say things were going poorly. The Second Continental Congress was definitely on. This further botched attempt to seize munitions at Concord that turned into a battle was just the cherry on top. There's a sad irony to this. 
only a few months back on February 27th, one day after that ugly business in Salem, Parliament accepted Prime Minister Lord Frederick North's conciliatory proposition. This proposed to let each colony tax itself, so long as a colony raised the funds to cover civil, judicial, and military needs, Parliament wouldn't interfere. But alas, this olive branch is too little too late, especially after the Battle of Lexington and Concord. A second Continental Congress is definitely happening. So, back to Philadelphia. We're not at Carpenter's Hall this time, though still on Chestnut Street, only a block or two away, at the Pennsylvania State House. You might know this building by a different name, a name that will come later, after, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. That's a story for a later episode. Let's just say you might know this place as Independence Hall. But to set the stage for this Congress, I'll add that the State House shares a lot stylistically with Carpenter's Hall. While the State House is a bit older, both are built in the Georgian style and have white trim around their windows and white doors. Both are primarily built of red brick, though Independence Hall lacks that beautiful checkering of black and bricks we saw at Carpenter's Hall. Another difference, the State House has a large bell tower at its top, but don't picture it looking quite as nice as it will in the 21st century. It has no clock in 1775. Also, the wooden tower is rotting. Of course, the choice to move buildings for this Congress has nothing to do with either building's gorgeous facades, rotting steeple withstanding. It's because the State House slash Independence Hall is bigger, and they'll need the space. This second Congress will have more and new delegates than the last one, including some friends of ours from past episodes, like Boston's popular wealthy merchant, John Hancock. Within the first month, he'll replace Peyton Randolph as president of the Congress. We also have Boston-born but now Philly-dwelling Dr. Benjamin Franklin, an inventor, renaissance man, and the author of the 1754 join-or-die political cartoon. Ben's also recently widowed and returned from Britain, where he served as an agent, or perhaps diplomat, rather, for Pennsylvania and other colonies. Let's also take note of a young red-headed Virginian we've met on a few past occasions. Between this Congress, which will last several years, and the early decades of the Republic to come, he has a number of significant roles yet ahead. This is Thomas Jefferson. Well, sounds like we have our who, why, where, and when. Let's go ahead and convene this Congress. Per last year's arrangement, the Second Continental Congress officially begins on May 10th, 1775. War is in the air, and militias are training across the colonies. But let's be clear. This still does not mean talk of independence. Not just yet. Perhaps those Massachusetts men, particularly the Adams cousins, John and Sam, might like to have such conversations. At least, a future letter from John Adams to James Warren and Dr. Benjamin Rush's later writings indicate that. But by and large, independence is not yet on the minds, or at least not openly on the lips, of patriots. Thus far, this is a civil war, and local to New England at that. What more it will become remains to be seen, though recent events are pressing Congress to make decisions. After five days and various reports on the Battle of Lexington and Concord, the Second Continental Congress responds to news of British troops heading to New York by instructing the colony to permit them, but be ready to defend itself. Then only days later, on May 18th, this august body learns that in the early, still dark hours of May 10th, a little over 100 New Englanders, primarily from a group known as the Green Mountain Boys, seized Fort Ticonderoga on Lake Champlain's southwestern shore. This is a messy development for several reasons. One, this military operations co-commanders, Ethan Allen, and the later to become infamous Benedict Arnold, both want the glory and control of the narrative. Two, the fort's surrounding area, called the New Hampshire Grants, is disputed territory claimed by New York and New Hampshire. And three, rumor has it that Ethan claimed the fort, quote, in the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress, close quote. This second Congress, which only first convened hours after the fall of the fort, certainly never gave him such authority. Yet, here we are. Perhaps preparing for this civil war to spread is wise. Before the month is through, Congress organizes a Ways and Means Committee to examine the acquisition of munitions. As early June passes, 
talk of a colonial army grows among the delegates, with the Congress voting on June 10th to recommend to the various colonies to procure or prepare munitions or send such support to the quote-unquote American army in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Still, does this Continental Congress really want to take the monumental step of creating a United Colonies Continental Army? It's a major proposition. Might God's forgiveness spare British North America from this deadly path and open the way to reconciliation with the King? On June 12, 1775, Congress calls for the colonies to fast, pray, and repent for this very purpose. Quote, This Congress, therefore, considering the present critical, alarming, and calamitous state of these colonies, do earnestly recommend that Thursday, the 20th day of July next, be observed by the inhabitants of all the English colonies on this continent as a day of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer, that we may, with united hearts and voices, unfeignedly confess and deplore our many sins, and offer up our joint supplications to the all-wise, omnipotent, and merciful disposer of all events, humbly beseeching him to forgive our iniquities, to remove our present calamities, to avert those desolating judgments with which we are threatened, and to bless our rightful sovereign, King George III. Close quote. Huh. Rightful sovereign. Seems that for all the growing support, some delegates still don't want to charge into a fight. But this talk of reconciliation and waiting things out doesn't fly for the Massachusetts delegates. They have war on their hands already. John Adams has personally seen the militias gathering at the Cambridge Common, hoping to keep the British army from again advancing out of Boston in the wake of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. They need this Continental Congress to do as the president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, James Warren, has requested to organize its own Continental Army from across the colonies. And despite this Congress's many divisions, its sectionalism and various opinions, John Adams is determined to see it done. It's likely June 14, 1775. Delegates officially representing 12 of the 13 colonies all but Georgia, are gathered in the Pennsylvania State House's assembly room. Seated in Windsor chairs amid a sea of tables draped in green, the delegates are in the midst of deliberations. For weeks now, they've considered creating a Continental Army, but John Adams is eager to move this along. The short, stout New Englander rises and takes the floor. As John later recalls, I rose in my place, and in as short a speech as the subject would admit, represented the state of the colonies the uncertainty in the minds of the people, their great expectation and anxiety, the distresses of the army, the danger of its disillusion, the difficulty of collecting another, and the probability that the British army would take advantage of our delays, march out of Boston, and spread desolation as far as they could go. I concluded with a motion in form that Congress would adopt the army at Cambridge and appoint a general President of the Congress, John Hancock's eyes light up. He wants to be the Army's commander-in-chief and trusts his fellow Massachusetts man has his back. But to continue with John Adams' account, I had no hesitation to declare that I had but one gentleman in mind for that important command, and that was a gentleman from Virginia who was among us and very well known to all of us, a gentleman whose skill and experience as an officer, whose independent fortune, great talents, an excellent universal character would command the approbation of all America and unite the cordial exertions of all the colonies better than any other person in the Union. Mr. Washington, dressed in his elegant blue and buff military uniform as a show of support for the Civil War in New England, George Washington unintentionally already looks the part. Yet, the humble delegate will not sit here and listen to such compliments. The powerfully built, towering Virginian now rises and quietly exits the room as the disappointed President John Hancock glowers. With George absent, the delegates debate his candidacy for general in earnest. John Adams tells us that no one opposes George for any personal reasons. True, his military track record is checkered. As we learned in Episode 1, 
His loss at Fort Necessity in 1754 marked the start of the French and Indian, or Seven Years' War. Yet, his cool-under-fire leadership saved hundreds of General Edward Braddock's men in 1755. Americans tend to focus on the latter, though. So brave yet modest George is a war hero here. The real question for many is whether this Cambridge-based army of New Englanders will obey a Southerner. Eventually, doubting delegates are able to see this as a virtue, not a vice. These colonies can't make a united stand without actually being united. A Southern commander from the powerful, most populous colony, Virginia, is in fact a good thing. In short, George is perfect for the job. John Adams' diary isn't the clearest on the exact day he gave this speech that set up George Washington's nomination, though I believe the evidence strongly suggests June 14th, the same day that the Congress officially created the Continental Army. But whether the 14th, a few days earlier, or even the next day, George again absents himself on June 15th while the delegates vote on his candidacy. Unanimously, they select him as the new Continental Army's commander-in-chief. And yes, even John Hancock comes around, at least to some degree, describing George as a fine man when he writes about this outcome to Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. It's a great honor. But George isn't the kid we met nearly 21 years ago at Fort Necessity. He gets that war isn't a game and glory. He understands better than most what a burden this command is, that success is not guaranteed, and he doubts if he's up to the task. He expresses these worries in a letter to his wife, Martha. I have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it, this command, not only from my unwillingness to part with you and the family, but from a consciousness of it being a trust too great for my capacity. But George also understands duty. And so, the day after Congress votes to make him commander of the Continental Army, he gives his answer. It's June 16th, 1775. Congress is assembled in the Pennsylvania State House. From his seat as president of the Congress, John Hancock informs the delegate from Virginia, George Washington, that yesterday, this assembled body voted unanimously to name him general and commander-in-chief of those forces raised and to be raised in defense of American liberty. And now, John asks, will he accept? George Washington rises from his chair standing tall and elegant as ever in his blue uniform. He answers John Hancock. Mr. President, though I am truly sensible of the high honor done me in this appointment, yet I feel great distress from a consciousness that my abilities and military experience may not be equal to the extensive and important trust. However, as the Congress desire it, I will enter upon the momentous duty and exert every power I possess in their service and for support of the glorious cause. I beg they will accept my most cordial thanks for this distinguished testimony of their approbation. But lest some unlucky event should happen, unfavorable to my reputation, I beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in this room that I, this day, declare with the utmost sincerity, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. As to pay, sir, I beg leave to assure the Congress that as no pecuniary consideration could have tempted me to have accepted this arduous employment at the expense of my domestic ease and happiness, I do not wish to make any profit from it. I will keep an exact account of my expenses. Those, I doubt not, they will discharge. And that is all I desire. No promises of victory or greatness. Only recognition of the weight of the task and his own shortcomings. Wise words, George. Truly, this is not the youth we saw occupying that crude fort in the Ohio Valley more than two decades ago. Only a few weeks from now, on July 3rd, the 21st anniversary of his youthful failure at Fort Necessity, George Washington will find himself in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just down the road from Harvard Square, on the town's common, taking command of the Continental Army. George has far more experience and wisdom than he did that frightful day in 1754. But being outnumbered, outgunned, leading undisciplined men, well, I guess some things haven't changed.
History That Doesn't Suck is created and hosted by me, Greg Jackson. Special guest, Professor Ben Sawyer. Production by Airship. Sound design by Molly Bach. Theme music composed by Greg Jackson. Arrangement and additional composition by Lindsey Graham of Airship. HTDS is supported by fans at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. My gratitude to your kind souls providing funding to help us keep going. Thank you. And a special thanks to our patrons whose monthly gift puts them at producer status. Anthony Pizzullo, Art Lang, Beth M. Chris Jansen, Bev Hawkins, Bill Thompson, Bob Drazovich, Brad Herman, Brian Goodson, Carrie Bagoli, Charles and Shirley Clendenden, Chris Mendoza, Christopher McBride, Christopher Merchant, Christopher Pullman, Dane Polson, David Aubrey, David DeFazio, David Rifkin, Ben Key, Durante Spencer, Donald Moore, Ernie Lowe, Gareth Griffin, Henry Brunges, Jacob McDaniel, Jake Gilbreth, James Black, Janie McCreary, Jeffrey Moots, Jennifer Magnolia, Jessica Popic, Joe Dobis, Joel Kerr, John Frugal Dougal, John Booby, John Keller, John Oliveros, John Rudlevich, John Schaefer, John Sheff, Jordan Corbett, Justin M. Spriggs, Karen Bartholomew, Kim R., Kyle Decker, Lawrence Neubauer, Linda Cunningham, Mark Ellis, Mark Price, Matthew Mitchell, Matthew Simmons, Melanie Jan, Nick Sikender, Noah Hoff, Paul Goinger, Reese Humphreys Wadsworth, Rick Brown, Sarah Trawick, S.B. Wave, Sean Peppard, Sharon Thiessen, Sean Baines, The Creepy Girl, Tisha Black, and Zach Jackson. Join me in two weeks, where I'd like to tell you a story.